Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so, if, thinking about my life, right, I, I'm doing a pretty good job of living up to the American dream, right? I'm, I'm married, I've got a kid, we've got a dog. That's important. Not, it's not the American dream without a dog. Uh, you know, we, we own a house, right? We have two cars. If we had a white picket fence, you could put us on a postcard. And that, that idea of, of the American dream, it, it, it permeates our culture a lot more than I think most of us realize. I mean, it's a foundational idea of, of what we think of ourselves and how we think it, what we think it means to be an American. Here, here's two different definitions. They, they kind of work together. Right? So one is, the U.S. ideal, according to which equality of opportunity, permits any American to aspire to high attainment and material success. The second is, the American dream is a life of personal happiness and material comfort as traditionally sought by individuals in the United States. Now, <clears throat> think about just every election in your lifetime. And what has every politician promised? That. Right? They promised they can get you to that. They've, they've always promised, right, if you elect me, I will make it easier for you to achieve the American dream. It's the foundational, it's the cornerstone of American culture, right? It's, it's in our bones. The American dream tells us, right, the way we live our lives, it tells us, my money is mine, right? I worked for it, I earned it, I can do with it as I please. That's the message that we have absorbed just deep into ourselves, right? I worked hard for it. I earned it. It's mine. I can do with it whatever I want. And we really believe that, don't we, right? We don't really care what people do with their money as long as they aren't obtaining it illegally or spending it illegally. We're pretty much okay with it, right? Do what you want. It's yours. You earned it. Like, that is the ethical standard we apply to money in this country. But how many of us have actually stopped to think about what the Bible might have to say about this? So first we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, verses 10 through 18. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take heed lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth 
that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as at this day. I can look at my life and it's, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I've accomplished a fair bit, right? I've got two college degrees. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm married. I have a kid who's now leaving the service because she's sleepy, um, right? We bought a house in a really nice neighborhood. It's a nice house. And it would be really easy for me to fall into the trap of saying, man, look how great I am, right? Look at all that I have done. But if you dig into it, so much of that was God and not me. Even the house we bought, you know, we bought a house in like the worst seller's market in living memory with no savings in our bank account and not particularly great credit and a ton of student loan debt in less than a month. It was literally the first house we looked at, the first offer we put in, which was not one penny over the asking price, and it got accepted a few hours later. That wasn't us. <laughs> if you've tried to buy a house in the last couple of years, you know that's not how it's supposed to work right now. That was absolutely God lining things up for us. We, haven't, we hadn't even been approved for the mortgage yet when we got the house, which, let me tell you, is a whole other ordeal, right? <laughs> See, God set that up for us. And at every turn in our lives, all the good things that have happened, all the things we would like to, to pat ourselves on the back for, when we really dig into it, we didn't actually do much on our own. God did it. You know, I, I, <clears throat> I used to have a terrible fear of public speaking. It was like, it was my biggest fear. I hated doing it. I hated, even just in school, being called to give presentations in front of the class. It was nerve-wracking. The first sermon I preached was at the youth group for First Methodist downtown. I had a 15-minute time slot, and I thought I had enough material for 15 minutes. I was done in two minutes. You think I'd talk fast now. Because I was so scared, right? It just all came out in a rush. I didn't preach again for four years, and when I did, I did, I had to have every single word written out. Not because I would forget it, I had it memorized, but because if I didn't have that paper in front of me, I could not stand in front of people and talk. I'm telling you this so that you know if I preach a good sermon, it's not me. This is not a natural skill that I've always had, okay? This is God's doing. I can't be proud of this. Because it's not my doing. We all would like to say that we have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we live in a nation that values that ideal, right? The self-made man or woman, the person who's so independent they don't need any help, the person who has just taken care of themselves. But it's a myth. There is not one human being in all of history who has pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. It does not happen. It cannot happen. It is impossible. Because all the skills, all the talent, all the ability you have is given to you by God. You do not make yourself. We don't like to hear this, by the way. We would like to be able to tell ourselves that we have accomplished so much on our own, but the truth is we can do nothing apart from the God who made us. Period. 
And it's interesting that, that this is what Moses tells the Israelites here. Deuteronomy, by the way, is Moses' last sermon to the Israelites. He preaches it from, on a mountainside before, they, before he dies and they cross into the promised land. And if you thought my sermons were long, read Deuteronomy. But you notice one of the last things he tells him is, don't you dare forget everything you have. Everything is a gift from the God who saved you from slavery in the first place. Think to all the things he's done for you, the miracles he's done, the ways he's provided for you. And remember, all you have now, you would not have apart from him. And isn't it interesting that even, even then, right, the temptation was, look what I've done. Look how great I am. Look at all that I've accomplished, right? This is not a uniquely American problem. I don't want to set it up that way. This is a human problem. We like to tell ourselves that we have accomplished this and we have earned it because then it puts us in control. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth in the first place. That's an important distinction, by the way. It does not say God will give you wealth. We need to be clear on that, right? Following God doesn't mean God blesses you with a mansion. And it also means that what you do does matter. The way you use your gifts and your talents is important. God gives you the power to get wealth. God gives you the power to do the things you are able to do. What you do with it is very important as a result. But what this ultimately means is this. We don't own our money. We don't own our house. Don't own your cars, you don't own your clothes, you don't own your family or your friends. Any of your assets. All of your money, all your talents, all your jobs, your time itself, it's not yours. All of it belongs to God. God is the rightful owner of everything. And he expects us to use it as he pleases, not as we please. Brings us to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. Therefore, I tell you, <clears throat> do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or about your body, what you shall wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one minute to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. There's a footnote on verse 27. And just as a side, anytime you see a footnote in your Bible, always read it. It can change the verse for you, right? So verse 27 is normally written as, uh, and which of you by being anxious can add one minute to his span of life, right? The footnote says, you could also translate this as, which of you by being anxious could add one cubit to his stature? 
a cubit's a measure of distance. But the implication is Jesus is actually kind of implying two things here. One, he's implying don't worry if you literally don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Right? How's that going to help you if you're just worrying about it? <clears throat> but he's also saying don't worry about how the things you eat, the things you drink, the things you wear affect the way other people see you in the community. And I have to wonder if maybe that that interpretation is a bit more applicable to us today. How many of us have chosen a restaurant or food or clothing or a house or a car based on how we thought other people would see us with it? When we were first married, we were, I was going to say dirt poor, but we were poorer than dirt. Like, dirt looked good. I had a part-time church job, and my wife was working for a full-time job, but her full-time job paid less than my part-time church job. So there was no money, right? Uh, we were on food stamps for a while, and actually at, at one point we visited a food bank because we, we just couldn't eat otherwise. And the thing that sticks out to me as I think about that is that as we were driving to that food bank, the thing that was worrying me the most is what if someone I know sees me? What are they going to think of me? That was my biggest fear. What will they think of me? Even when the need is real, that concern about stature and appearance is still there. These concerns that Jesus lists here, things about our, our food and what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear and all of this stuff, this, these are the driving factors in how we make decisions about money, more often than not. That anxiety about it, about how we're going to provide for ourselves and care for ourselves and how we're going to make sure we're presentable and how we're going to make sure we have enough to live on, that's what guides all of our choices about how we spend our money and how we use it. Still today, it's true. And I'll be the first to admit, I do this too. It might, in fact, be my greatest sin. I worry about money more than I should. But all of us do. A few years ago, my, my grandfather was, he got remarried after my grandmother died and they were selling both their houses and moving into a little uh, retirement facility. And he was always, always, always just unbelievably anxious about his money. To the point that my dad called up their accountant because they had the same accountant and said, hey, do I need to be worried? I mean, am I going to have to like, take over his his?" Bills soon? I mean, what, what, how bad is this, really? And he said to him, <clears throat> he, he looked at the accounts and said, well, you know, if he, if he keeps spending money at the rate that he's spending money, he has 70 years before he runs out. Man was like 85 at the time. 70 years before he runs out of money. Why is he panicking? No one knows. We still haven't figured it out. We all do it. We worry about money even when we don't actually have much of a reason to. We worry about it. And we let that fear guide our choices. And so we come to Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be as when a man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, and one talent, by the way, is about 15 years' worth of wages. So this is an unimaginable sum of money for a normal person. 
So to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not winnow, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have not winnowed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and there men will weep and gnash their teeth. Cheerful little story, right? It's great. Doesn't sound very Jesus-y, does it, right? For to he who has more will be given, and from he who has not, everything will be taken away. Um, but you know, the bottom line is just like those servants, God, God has entrusted us with everything we have. All of it, our money, our homes, our cars, families, our intellect, our skills, everything we have belongs first to God, and we're meant to use it as he wants us to. So imagine, right, if you hire a broker to manage your money, you'll sit down with them and you'll kind of tell them what your goals are and, and what, what you're investing for and, and how aggressive or conservative you want to be and, and how much risk you're willing to tolerate and all of that stuff. And, and when you leave, then they'll manage your money for you the way that you want them to. And they'll take a commission out of that, and that's what they use to spend on their own needs. Well, so too... God expects us to invest what he's given us on his behalf. And says if we do, he'll bless us, and if we don't, we've got a problem. You see, too often we want the crown without the cross. We want the blessings of God and the comfort and the good life without the obligation that comes along with it. See, to dream of becoming wealthy just so you can indulge your own selfish fantasies, that's not in alignment with God's will. And my friends, the Lord is a generous giver. Everything we have is his, and he lets us keep 90% of it. He only asks that we return 10% back. To go back to the broker analogy, our commission is 90%. That's pretty great. God is a generous giver. And to be clear, he wants us to enjoy our gifts. 
It's okay to buy a nice house. It's okay to have a nice car or wear nice clothing or go out to a nice restaurant. These are not bad things. God actually likes it when we enjoy the gifts he's given us. It's okay. As long as we take a kingdom view of all of it. A few years ago, I was on a mission trip to El Salvador. And we go and we stay in a little children's home and we do work around, the, we do like construction projects around the, the building. One of the workers there uh, lived in a little slum nearby where we happened to be going every day to del- deliver meals to people. Um, and he lived in a little, you know, tin shack next to what we thought was a creek. And it turned out to be an open-air sewer. And uh, while we were there, he and his son both got very sick with some kind of viral infection. Uh, his son was actually hospitalized. He had what, what, you know, all the symptoms were like a severe form of the flu, you know, all the, the fatigue and the body aches and the fever. He showed up to work every day, doing hard physical manual labor with a smile on his face, just joyful all the time, making us laugh even though he felt terrible and his son was in the hospital. We found out later the reason they'd gotten sick is that as they were walking by their house one day in the middle of, a, of, of the afternoon rains, because it rains every day, they had slipped in the mud and fallen into that sewer. Also, while we were there, his neighbor's house, during a rainstorm, fell into it because the the mud underneath just collapsed as the water washed it away. Luckily, she wasn't home at the time, but now she's living with him. So he's got an extra mouth to feed in his house. And of course, his house is now at risk of falling into a sewer at any given moment because it rains every day. He didn't say this to complain to us. He just was telling us what was going on because we had asked. We were talking with him. As we worked all day long, we found all this out over the course of a few days. By the end of the week, our church had paid to put a concrete retaining wall around that sewer so no houses would fall in and paid to run electricity into his neighborhood so people could have light and, and could start their own businesses and their homes and all these wonderful things. And you know what? The church didn't have to do a fundraiser for it. They had a benevolence account at the church, just for stuff like that. Not that people gave to specifically, but that was just a line item in their budget so that when people gave, part of every dollar you give just went into that automatically. And I tell you this so that you understand that when you give faithfully to the church, that's the kind of thing that can happen. It's not just about keeping the lights on or keeping the building open or paying the staff. I like all those things. They're all good. But when you give to the church faithfully, the church can make a huge difference in the lives of the people who need it most. This is a huge problem for us. We're supposed to give 10%. That's not a number we came up with out of nowhere. That's, that's in the Bible. God says, you give 10% back to me. Jesus comes along and says, yep, that's one of the laws you still have to follow. Sorry, you're still doing it. Do you know what the average American churchgoer gives? 2%. And that's an average, right? So what really happens is a handful of people give well over 10%. Most people give nothing. Do you know if every American who came to church on a Sunday morning was actually giving 10% of their income? Do you know what we could do? Do you know that hospitals and colleges were invented by churches? We came up with those ideas. We funded them for years because we could. We had the extra money to fund them. People didn't give specially to them. Churches just gave them the money that they had left over. Because of the generosity of believers for, for decades, centuries even, people were healed and educated. 
If everyone who came to church in America on Sunday morning actually gave 10%, the church could pay off everyone's medical debt, could pay for the entire healthcare system, and every American could go to college for free without raising taxes, without relying on the government to do any of it. The church can do that as a free gift. We are the greatest untapped resource in the country. But people don't give. There's a lot of reasons why, right? Some people just go to their church and they don't give because they don't think the church needs the money. It looks like the church is doing fine. Right? It's a nice building. They've got plenty of staff. Clearly, they've got plenty of money. That may or may not be true, but the point actually is that it doesn't matter if you think the church is doing fine. You don't give because you think the church needs the money. You give because God said, give. Some people don't give because they're afraid. Right? They're worried they can't afford it. And I'll tell you, I have a lot of sympathy for that because I've been there. I've had those moments of fear of being not sure if I give money to the church, how am I going to pay for groceries tomorrow? I understand it. But I'll tell you this. I don't know of a single person who has gone hungry because they gave to the church. I don't know of a single person who has gone bankrupt before because they gave to the church or who has suffered in any way because they gave to the church. Quite the opposite. I know plenty of people who weren't sure where their next meal was going to come from and they gave anyway, and lo and behold, God provided for them. I have heard story after story after story of people who faithfully gave even when they weren't sure if they could afford it and the Lord blessed them beyond their wildest dreams. Now it takes an act of courage if you're worried about it. But it's one that the Lord always rewards. And then, then there are people who don't give because they're dissatisfied with their church. They don't like the current pastor. They don't like what the church is doing. And so they withhold their money. Let me tell you, those people I would advise to repent because they have sinned against the Lord their God. Because, see, you don't give because you are approving what the church says. That's not why you do it. You give because God says, give. It's not about your approval. It's about the fact that the God who created you says, you need to do this. It's for your own good so that you will learn to trust in me. The American dream tells us it's my money. I earned it. I worked hard for it. I can do with it as I please. Here's what the gospel says. Go to the next slide. First, it's not our money. All of it comes from God, bar none. Second, we're not entitled to it. And when you think about it, the American dream is at its core an expression of entitlement. We're not entitled to it. We are entrusted with it. I hate to break it to you, but one day you're going to die. Do you know that? It's the ultimate statistic. One in one dies. Richest man in the world still going to die. And you can leave money to your children and grandchildren. One day they too will die. We cannot take this with us. No one can. We are stewards of it for the time that we're here. And one day we're giving it all back. One day we have to stand before God and give an accounting of what we've done with our lives and why we did it and how we did it and how we used what he gave us. We are entrusted with it, which leads us to the last one. God expects us to use it in the interest of his kingdom. 
that is the biblical view of, of money and wealth and success. And it's important to understand that it's not a bad thing. God does not think money is a bad thing. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And you combat the love of money with generosity. The way you break the power that money has over you is by giving freely and joyfully. Do you know, the Bible talks about money more than pretty much anything else. Because there is not much else in this world that has the power to rule over you like the love of money. We break that power by giving. It's not ours. It's God's. And thank God he's a generous giver and he likes us to enjoy our gifts. Money's not a bad thing. And enjoying the fruits of your success is not a bad thing. And I can't emphasize that enough because when I talk about money, people think I'm hating on the rich people. I'm not. Right? I would like to be one of you one day. It's okay to enjoy the fruits of your success. God wants you to. It's fine, as long as you never forget to acknowledge that it is all God's first and foremost. And so you give 10% to remind yourself that none of this is yours to begin with. You give 10% to remind yourself that everything belongs to God before it belongs to you, and it will all be returned to him one day anyway. There's one other reason people don't give to churches, and it might even be the most common one. They're not excited about what's happening at their church. They don't see the point. What are they given to? And I get it. I get it. It's hard to work yourself up to give your hard-earned money just to pay the light bill. I understand. But I've been in churches where, where that faithful giving transformed lives, sometimes on the other side of the world, And for centuries, the faithful giving of the church literally saved people from certain death by providing medical care and hospitals and orphanages to care for the children. The fact of the matter is, when you are giving faithfully, you can expect that God will do great things in your church, through your church, and with your church. So what are you waiting for? Just give. And expect that when you do, you will see God do great things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.